we as coaches sometimes think that we are the ones who are going to be create team chemistry just because we give a rules how we're going to drive in the bus is there going to be allowed phones is there not going to be allowed phones this is team chemistry no team chemistry is really created in the locker room you know what i mean it's like i call it the jungle law you know pretty soon they're going to realize on themselves who is the lion who is where in the food chain and i think in a selection process you can really manage that Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Croatian professional coach and former head coach of the Slovakian national team, Ivan Rudez. Coach Rudez is here today to talk about navigating the three frontiers of the coaching profession, building better passers through footwork, hand placement, and pivoting. And we talk losing seasons and changing defenses during the always fun start, sub, or sit. We are excited to announce the launch of Slapping Glass Plus coming on May 16th. Our membership community, which gives access to Slapping Glass TV and Netflix style platform of all of our breakdown videos, the premium Sunday morning newsletter, a private coaches corner community, and more. Please visit slappingglass.com for more info. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coach Yvonne Rudez. So coach, we're going to explore a lot of different areas of the game today. Wanted to start with what you've talked about to us is sort of dealing with the the three frontiers of being a coach and knowing how to deal with your players, with management, and then also with the press and how to kind of navigate all three of those frontiers as a coach in different levels. And so wanted to start just with your thoughts on the skill sets and things that a coach needs to do to effectively work in those three areas? That's a great question and a great topic. Even though those three frontiers are important and coaches should be really be aware that those frontiers exist and they are important, of course, they're not equally important. You know, when you talk about court as being frontier number one, just uh, battle, battle with your players and battle with the opponents. Frontier number two, media and the press that surrounds the club. And of course, frontier number three is the management. Exploring that management aspect from the, to begin with, it's quite important. Like the examples that we're going to talk about are not just going to be my experience, but also I want to share also some of our colleagues' experiences because everybody got a, a certain issues in certain phases of their careers as a coach in their, in their points, in their clubs, when they had to face or one of those frontiers cause them their jobs or one of those frontiers make their jobs even more successful. So I think it's good, a good topic. So just to start off with, uh, with the management, I think it's important to understand the difference in the front office in Europe than in the NBA. You know, in the NBA, there's usually like owners and there's like a front office with the vice president, president of the basketball operation, GM, assistant GM, da, 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 da. in Europe, for example, in the most of the clubs that I work with, half of the clubs didn't have a GM. It was a direct communication between a coach and the owners or the coach and the presidents. So if you're lucky, these presidents are from basketball background and they know basketball. Like, for example, the ownership of the club could be private, but it also could be owned by the city. I worked in two teams, one in Slovakia and one in Switzerland, for example, where there was not an owner. So the, the club owned to the city or a province. And usually the management that is leading the club is like politicians who are on a four-year mandate that they applied for. And they are going to be four years president of the club because they love basketball or they want to bring the club to another level. Or it's important for their business because they're a local businessman. They want to you know, explore the frontiers of his own business through sports because he likes to see the gym pack and stuff like that. So I think it's important to understand where your management come from. I think it's very important to know his basketball background and his perception of basketball mm -hmm. from the beginning, because this is where usually when things don't go as plans, usually this is where the cracks are going to happen in communication. So as more you get to know his background and his perception, 
you're going to know, will he be able to understand your basketball philosophies and ideas at all? You know, and if there is no gym, your job is to really make that crack of basketball knowledge, the, the gap between the management and the, your staff, let's say the president or the owner, the shortest possible. You cannot run away from the conversations. You cannot run away from presenting your idea, how your team want to play, how you want to recruit and how generally your, your season programming is going to look. So I think your job is to make that gap as short as possible. There are some coaches who, however, refuse to communicate and uh, they don't want to have that type of conversation with direct ownership. And they say, you, you leave me alone and I will leave you alone. You handle the money and I will handle the court and let's see how it goes. And I think that's not the right way to do it because I think even though those presidents, talk about some of them, right, are not coming from basketball background, they are there for some reason of enthusiasm or love for sports or Regardless if the business aspect of your private target is involved, your job is to make that gap shorter, right? For example, we have some examples in Russia about that. When we stick to the communication in Russia, many coaches told me, and I had a situation like that in my first year in Slovakia when I was 27. You know, my office was, uh, you have to cross to the VIP lounge. When the game is over, okay. you got to cross the <laughs> VIP lounge to get to the office, right? In a VIP lounge, everybody's after the games, you know, sponsors, fans, <laughs> VIP, everybody's half drunk already. <laughs> so some of my colleagues, they worked in Russia. And I had an example in Slovakia a couple of times too. You know, you, you have to get to your office, right? You want to have your staff meeting after the game and everything. But during that course, there's like, you got to cross 30, 50 steps, <laughs> People stopping you and start want to communicate about the game with you. You know, heads are hot whether you win or losing. People who are involved in the club's management want to stress some of their ideas about how games should be played. I think this is really important for young coaches to understand that you got to set the ground rules from the beginning. Because if you don't set the ground rules from the beginning about how you guys are going to communicate, it's going to be problems. I had a good mentors who warned me all about that. So I didn't have any issues because the first day I came in, I said, this is Tuesdays is the day we're going to have meetings. Regardless what your business is, Tuesday or Wednesday, you choose. It's not my practice. You're not going to guys going to come on my practice using phones and I'm going to come to your office using phones. So practice is our church or our, our sanctuary. This cannot be intact. If you want to comment or ask questions about the games and why's, this is the day and this is the hour we're going to stress it out. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask me anything you want, but never after the game or never phone calls after the game. Are we cool? Yes, we cool, coach. If you don't do that, I think you're in a lot of, in a lot of unnecessary, I wouldn't say trouble, but you're in a necessary energy waste. You're going to lose a lot of energy, especially if you're a character who likes to, you know, please people with answers and want to be, you know, a responsible and a good human being answering to every question. So you're going to waste one hour of unnecessary energy after the game explaining what and what to somebody who really doesn't see maybe things the same way you are. So I think it's important to establish that line of communication with full respect. And from day one, so the unnecessary issues are always handled in the room. And then in that room, the war room, everything can be asked and everything can be criticized or, or praised or whatever. And I think coming to a new club in a new country for a coach who is not from that country specifically, I think it's important to understand that background, who is your management, why are they there, understand them, have also an empathy towards their jobs, but also have character enough to say, to stick to your own guns when it comes to what do you think it's necessary for a training process and a game should be handled like yeah. and how the communication should be handled like. Coach, a lot of great stuff in there about dealing with upper management or here in the United States might be like an athletic director or university president at the college level. But how about that next frontier of dealing with the press and with media and whatnot? About the media, look, this is something that us should put this load to assistance. I'm, I'm just going to give you an example. I don't want to talk about theoretically. I signed in a club where he's a veteran player who was at the last contract year. Now, of course, you are always happy when you hear you have some veteran players. Usually these guys have some captainship, they're former captains, and they're like four, five, seven years with the club. Let's say that they're on the end of the career. And think the character of your veterans in the team, if you enter the new club and they are under contract, is crucial. It's crucial for team chemistry. Usually those guys are there long enough. They know the local media, they know the local journalists. I had a situation when my veteran had coffee with journalists every day. 
and uh, discuss things that were uh, handled in practice. And I was not, I didn't realize that that he was uh, buying the attention of the journalist till my assistant told me because he saw him every day after practice drinking coffee with a specific journalist. Journalist also we should uh, divide into a pure statistical reporters and the one who are opinion makers. This one was the opinion maker. That means he thinks himself very, very highly and he wants to create opinion of his environment. You know what I mean? Right. So he was one of the opinion makers. And these guys, if they are get too close to the, the team and the team, usually players, if their own individual agenda is not going in the way with the team, for sure, they're going to try to find a year of sympathy with this reporter who that might affect and destroy your team chemistry. So I think it's, it's important to set the ground rules from the start as well with these type of veterans to understand that uh, everything that comes out of the locker room is going to be very dangerous for our team chemistry and therefore he has to bear the consequences if he continues to do so. But these are just one details how media can, you know, get to some information that might hurt your team on the end. But because all I do is not out of control, you know, everybody's right when they say the coaches are control freaks, but I know that these things can influence his game. And if it influences his game, it influences our team. So therefore, I want to make sure that we have things sure. uh, communicated the right way from the beginning. You know what I mean? So media in that sense. So really, I, I had so many dear colleagues, great coaches got fired around Christmas because they were so obsessed with what is media writing about them. What is, uh, I don't know, Facebook, all these social media. They really lost control of their what really their job is and uh, their passion is. And this is the court. So I think it's smart to give this type of a load, not for control purposes, I repeat. It's just for making sure that every player during the courses of the season stays locked in mm-hmm. 100% for what our team target is. And I want to talk to those players first before I found out that something that somebody wrote, that he reads, because players, you know, they always, oh, we don't read, we don't, they always read. They always read and they always care. This is, this is crap. <laughs> so they might say, oh, we don't read, but they all read. And if they all read, I know that I want one of my assistants, especially if I have a local assistant, I want him to read because I want to anticipate if this might affect one of my players for him to give 100%. So that's all there is to it about that press and media. So it is a frontier. But you really shouldn't be like wasting your energy into it. Just one, one more thing to talk about press. I mean, communication, of course, the media, you're going to be the one handling press conferences and players watch you. I think it's always important to praise the guys mm-hmm. who are not scoring champions uh, more. Because usually a psychological game is that all your, probably the management always wants to praise the guys who score. And they don't see the guy who has been in perfect position nine out of 10 times in pick and roll defense or in transition defense, the guy who communicates. And I think it's important to communicate that a lot from the, from the first from the first day that even those uh, superstars of the team who consider themselves superstars because they're scoring, they will appreciate more the role of their teammates. So coach, moving from talking about the management and then also the press and kind of how coaches can deal with those two frontiers, let's talk now more about coaches being able to deal with their players and navigate all that is in that frontier? Well, the most important thing is you need to know who you work with, not only from a technical and tactical standpoint, their basketball background, but the people you work with. If you're lucky enough, as I was, that I was able to select, let's say, at least four or five players for my team. I think the willingness to play defense comes to one Character comes to two. We're going to come back to character. And then uh, specific talent in offense, of course, comes to three. All three are equally important. By character, I mean somebody who is able to attack himself first. Somebody who is has high demands on himself. Somebody lose a game point guard that didn't pass the ball to him. And character is somebody that misses a shot, doesn't um, cry that the pass was bad. So for me, this is character. Coach? Sticking on kind of the player professional coach relationship, how do you approach it? You know, when you bring these guys in, how do you start building that relationship? Well, first of all, practice. I think uh, nothing can build that relationship than authority of knowledge on practice. And I think all the big players, I'm not talking about young players. Of course, young players are going to look authority at the coach automatically, but I'm talking about experienced pros, guys who've been around guys with championship background or the guys who want to have a championship background, they want to scan the coach throughout the first week. 
I think we feel like sometimes it's more important to have coffee with them and talk to them and say how you feel. But believe me, it's equally important that he knows that you're going to make him better. And I think if he feels that first week, that authority of knowledge is crucial for building that relationship. And another element that I add is that I don't want my assistants or my, my interns to be handling the individual work. I want to be on every individual practice, especially in the first three months of the season, because I want him to understand that I'm there for him, that I don't sleep if he doesn't get better. I want him to understand that I will be prepared for his individual vitamin that is 20 or 30 minutes. For me, this is equally important as a team practice. And I think that creates a relationship that is more important than if I take him to a stake outside. Even though individual conversation is important, don't get me wrong. I want to talk to them. I want to explain them the role, what the role is. And this is huge, I think, to break it down for them, even before the first practice, what the role is over the phone or over the video chat, because we don't want to have miscommunication throughout the season. Son, you're not going to play picker all this year. This is for the creators. You're going to be spacing, cutting, transition, offensive rebounds. That's you. Are you in? Yes, coach or no coach? There is no going back then. You know, but yep. if I promise him mountains and villages, yeah. then he's going to blame me. Why am I only waiting in the corners or st- something like that? You know what I mean? So I'm never promised to player something that I cannot fulfill. And I think this is also a cornerstone of trust, you know, that he knows that I'm not going to trick him. I laid it out for him. And I'm going to tell the guys that I'm going to give more minutes, more freedom. The guys who should be carrying our load, they're going to know it from the start. You know, and it's up to them now if they're going to live up to the role. If they're not going to, then this guy, the guy number eight, number nine, number 10, he's going to step there. You know, in Europe, unlike NBA, there are stories where you sign your leaders. And for some reason, the guy who you just expected to develop this year becomes even better and more brave in crucial moments than your leader who you signed from foreign country. And then he just takes over. I mean, in the NBA, it's not going to happen. I mean, Kyrie is going to play regardless. Harden is going to play regardless. You know what I mean? He sells jerseys. And it, this is okay. They live up to it, you know? But in Europe, still these things happen. These, uh, let's say, romantic stories of a guy who's just been lucky enough to embrace the opportunity, he became better throughout the season. So I think that trust begins with authority of knowledge and practice, not just by authority of yelling or yeah. authority just by coach, you know? And second of all is they want to be sure that you got their back, that you're loyal to them, and they want to make sure that you're going to make them better. And on the end, they want to make sure you're going to take them to victories. If if these three elements are there, it's going to be great. And uh, I think one of the things that I believe is when you talk about this was coach-player is also player-player relationship. Because I think we as coaches sometimes think that we are the ones who are going to be creating team chemistry. Just because we give a rules how we're going to drive in the bus, is there going to be allowed phones? Is there not going to be allowed phones? This is team chemistry. No, the team chemistry really, you can have some impact into it, of course, but team chemistry is really created in the locker room. You know what I mean? It's like I call it the jungle law. You know, pretty soon they're going to realize on themselves who is the lion, who is where in the food chain. And I think in the selection process, you can really manage that, that you have the great couple of characters with the specific roles that you have an alpha leaders, you have the vocal leaders, you have the leaders by example. Yeah. I never, for example, believe in one leader. I believe it's at least three. One by talent and courage in the crucial games, one by physicality and, and work, and one by voice. Yeah. Rarely you can have all three combined. You know. And I think if you set your principles and absolutes when it comes to you know effort on practice and some things that you demand from a whole team, and they see that you equally treat the most expensive guy and you equally treat the junior that you brought in from under 18, they're going to respect you. Sometimes the superstar is not going to like it, but they're going to respect you. Coach, within this chemistry, when there's times in the season when the chemistry isn't good or like the players don't like each other, how do you correct this? What's kind of the remedy for this when you realize like, hey, we're in trouble here. We don't have, you know, the players is bad chemistry. First of all, I think this could be anticipated just by it's either going to be position conflict, like domestic player versus foreign player on a center position, or it's going to be two alpha guards. Okay. It's easy to anticipate. It usually goes in three patterns, this type of micro conflict. I think the chemistry, I'm a big believer in a conflict theory. It might sound funny to you, but I believe that me sitting them down and saying, guys, you shouldn't act like that. I know you should. They they do like this. Yes, coach, right, coach? And they leave and they hate each other. It's not going to help. So I'm a big believer in a conflict theory. 
And if I know that, like, for example, two guards cannot stand each other, and I know it's going to blow up sooner or later because he didn't see him two times, he didn't pass the ball in transition two times, he said something, you know how people are sensitive, you know? Egos are sensitive, especially guys who really don't have a strong self-belief and they rely on the other too much, on others' opinion. These are the guys who usually get in that type of conflicts. I usually put them in you know, opposite teams and I, I don't call fouls sometimes just to see if they're going to go into a fist fight. And if they go, I'm going to maybe allow it, but not for like a bar fight. I'm going to allow the pushing and showing just so them to get it out. Yeah. And then I said, go for it, go for it. Yeah. And then I bring them the next day, 6 a.m., both of them who hate each other. This is usually done in uh, early in the season because you cannot do, do these things in playoffs. This is for early in the season to get things in order so later it would be okay. So when they get it out, yelling and cursing or maybe a fist or a shove mm. tomorrow no problem yeah. guys tomorrow 6 a.m we go to run so this let's say a little bit of punishment then bring them together you know yeah. so then they feel oh we're bad boys you know we, we got in a fight and for some reason i, I had an I had an experience this helped our team just to get it out of the way tell him everything you feel tell him tell him okay now you tell him you know, and I mean, it doesn't have to be shoving during scrimmage, but but let's say tomorrow we're going to sit after running and say, okay, now you tell him. Be a man, tell him what you think. Don't tell me because I never allow player when he comes to talk to me and I talk a lot with players individually, at least one hour each week with each player just for the film breakdowns and, you know, just to see the state of their mind. If they want to ask questions, I never allow them to talk about somebody else. So I'm here to talk to you. That means I'm not going to talk to you about them. I'm going to talk to them about them, you know, and they know it. So when I bring them together in the office and I go, okay, now go tell him everything you feel. And then you tell him everything you feel. Okay. Are we done? So are you done? Can we win games together now? Let's go. And then it's over. Yeah. And then it's over. Winning helps. <laughs> yeah. Winning helps. <laughs> if you win the next two games, it helps. So I think that's the, that's the one way to do it. Coach, looking at the three frontiers and sort of a general theme has seemed to pop up about how coaches can handle conflict, how they either handle conflict with the players, how they handle conflict with the press, or then within their management. What are things that you've seen other coaches do or that you've learned over the years about how successful coaches effectively handle conflict in all of these three different frontiers so that their career can continue to progress and they don't get bogged down in any one section? Well, some things you can't control then, like frontier of media, you can't control. It's competitive environment. We live in an era of the world where people, I feel like, feed of negative news more than positives. So I think the press knows it and they want to get the dirty laundry out. They want to make it look like a coach-player conflict every time a big team loses. They want to look like a player-player conflict. So this is something you cannot control. Management, you can also not control. Because uh, like my friend, Jean Tabak, who is successfully coaching VTB team now, he told me once, look, there are some managements. As soon as they read a negative comment about them or about uh, team performing, they're going to fire a coach. This is how it is. You cannot control the reaction of people who are making decisions based on fear, right? So I wouldn't really focus on these conflicts. I think this is important to understand. The real conflicts that you should focus is the court conflicts. Because these are going to happen. If you think it's going to be a smooth ride, uh, you know, no, you're wrong. So it's going to be, our job is really is, a lot of it is navigating the conflicts throughout the season and managing and anticipating. Understand that we are emotional human beings. We do sports with passion and emotion and conflicts are normal during the every week. Micro conflicts between players. This is normal thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that their chemistry is in danger. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Moving into more of a technical, tactical conversation with you. And it's going to be ghost screens? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We're, we're, we're actually obligated to talk about a ghost screen yeah. at least once a week. That's <laughs> by, Yeah, by our own, our own doing. But um, thoughts on basically just building better passers, you know, your thoughts on how to teach both professionals, but then also the youth on the art of passing, and we'll get more detailed as we get into this, but basically your overall thoughts on starting to teach passing as a skill. That's a great question. I mean, we all agree. We all agreed on the last conversation that probably this is the most neglected uh, basketball element of offensive basketball element that youth coaches dedicate their time into. 
And also I was one of them when I started. And I started as an under-16 coach in my coaching years uh, when I was 21. I think that maybe it's not a bad idea then and bad that we kind of separate the men's and pros yeah. and the methodology under 16, under 18, and under 14. I think the crucial, crucial thing happens when you're under 16. I think under 16 is the crucial period in player's development when he's most competent to absorb information and overcome new motorical and tactical contents. I think in methodology, it's very important to understand that it's equally for the pass to start to work on a proper footwork, dynamic footwork, how to hold the ball, details of footwork, how to use fakes, how to control your body and ability to start and stop. I mean, for a great passer, let's jump to a men's level now, when you talk about guards, just being able to control your body starts and stops. Ability to stop after one dribble, guy closing out on you, make a pump fake, you make one dribble and then you stop. It's either a jump stop or it's a one-two stop. You know, in ex-Yugoslavia school, we used to overcome the, that content in under 16. It's a must. So there is no way you're going to progress and go make it to the under 18 team if you don't overcome all that content from A to B, from B to C, from C to D. And it's very important that you understand that there is a little margin of improvisation there. It's quite simple recipe. What I'm saying is you cannot start teaching a fancy passes first because you saw it with Jason Kidd. Look at it like this. We all started to write in school, all three of us, a letter A in the same mm-hmm. way, right? Yeah, yeah. Same way they teach us. A is like this. But now after 30 years or 40 years, we write A differently, right? Yeah. But we started the same. So I think it's important to get the basic passes statically and dynamically first when you're 14 and then under 16 to do it in a full speed after stopping of one dribble, one to stop. It's important from left, from right and all the basic and then more complex passes. You know, it's just to respect the rule of graduality. You know what I mean? To gradually build it up. And because it's so hard, not very important pivoting and passing. I mean, if you don't teach players how to pivot, making a jump stop and then pivot or pivot before catching the ball, or, you know, these are, these are the things that are very, very, very hard to teach later on. It's more difficult. Depends on your level of uh, talent. You know, I, I also say that talent can be measured by hours you spend in a gym, but also one measurement of talent for me is how quickly you absorb information. This is also one important element of talent. But if you have a guy that you're already a pro but he has the ability to absorb information. You just got to go and teach. If he's not a good passer, believe no. me, problem is it's either in a footwork or how he holds the ball. Yeah. And I do believe that the great passers are made in under 16 category. This is where you build them up with the proper footwork, starts and stop with dribbling, pivoting, handwork. Uh, and then, of course, selection of pass, training the mind, reading in two on two, three on three situations, uh, teach him how to fake, how to think fast throughout certain exercises that are going to make him a complete junior player. Coach, I'd like to jump back when you said teaching how to just properly hold the ball. What is that to you? And then my next question on that is, we've always been taught, or at least, you know, me and Dan coming up, chest passing, you know, your thumb up, your thumb down, ball on the side. So what is holding the ball properly to you and the technique of the pass? Yeah. Well, when you talk about basic passes, Two-hand chest pass, single-hand push pass, Mm -hmm. but single-hand push, this is the biggest mistake. I think that we started, the coaches started to teach now single off the dribble pass before they teach a straight push pass. You know what I mean? That you stabilize the ball with two hands and then you release it with one. Elbow backwards, index finger, middle finger directed to the direction of the ball. This is very important because they teach them actually off the dribble baseball pass. It's terrible. You know what I mean? So you got to overcome the basic passes first, overhead pass. I read a book about of U.S. basketball about methodology of pass and thumb up, thumb down is the part that our school of basketball doesn't agree with. Thumb directed to each other, thumb directed to each other because the strength of the, of course, after the thumb is going to be down, like, you know, bottle, pulling out the bottle, but thumbs has to start directing to each other because you have a stronger grip of the ball. Because otherwise, you're going to have one hand having the dominance. But if you talk about two-hand chest pass, both hands should have equal dominance because it's going to be more strength evolved into it. Then single-hand push pass with stabilization hand, overhead pass, 
bounce pass, we talk about two-hand passes. Mm -hmm. And then all these passes must be done after pivoting, after fakes, in active footwork, stepping out with one foot, stepping out with another foot, and then adding a dribble, and then adding two dribbles, and then adding stops, like overhead pass with a jump. I think it changed. Overhead pass yeah. should be done with a jump now in some situations. They used to teach us don't jump and pass. But today, look like, for example, Bogdanovic in Utah, right? He's a big wing. He drives from the corners, jump, stop, skip pass, overhead, joining us free open three. So that's jump pass. When we talk about guards now, guards, ability to connect the pass after the change of direction. How many European guards are now, you see, they're able to change direction in one-on-one game? By change of direction, I'm talking about not changing hands. It's a huge difference, right? They just change the hand and they hop and hop and hop and do a hundred crossover without gaining advantage. Change of direction, like between the legs, and then you make a push pass. And after you have an advantage, mm. the help comes. Can you stop and control your body to make the right pass? You know, so connecting the pass, this advanced, advanced skill, of course, change direction into a one dribble pass. It's a dish or wrap or overhead or whatever. So it's just adding adding those elements. It's important to start very, very young. The next thing I want to ask about is is pivoting. And I think it's very important. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think coaches some say, oh, we're going to do reverse pivot or front pivot. And it can just confuse the players. And you can see it. Like, how do you go about teaching pivoting and getting transfer for the players to understand why they need to pivot, the importance of pivoting, and how it helps them? Huge. A great question. Great question. I mean, it's such a great question. It impacts the whole game. Yeah. Let's split it again. Let's go first to men's. I believe that even pros can be teached to attack the pivot right away. You can maybe not make it a second nature to what one season to do both pivots. Probably you will see him in the first week. This I call my analysis week. You will see his preferred pivot, right? He's already established pivot. Mm. And I will see if this pivot is going to be enough for us to get advantages. Usually it's not. So I'm going to add another one. If you talk about post players, I would add right away, if they catch the ball, let's say from the left side of the court, and they're right-handed players, and they are not great shooters, they're not Tim Duncan. They're Tim Duncan. The easiest solution is catch, back pivot to a jab step, boom, bank shot, right? But if they don't have a shot, so they must attack with speed and just catch and hold the ball and look, it's not enough. So they have to use catch and pivot right away. And I teach them to catch. When they catch, same yeah. rule applies to the guards. Catch and hop into the ball. So you're both, it's a one contact with the surface. So it's a jump, jump, stop, catch. Right away, they go to a front pivot face up, front pivot square up to the baseline. Because I believe that this move is going to make his defender shift his inside leg towards the baseline. He's going to look bounce. If you do it, catch and attack right away, the defender must react. So the whole defense might shift even on the weak side. They're going to protect that baseline. That's why I don't like players to catch the ball on the low post. I like them to catch it more towards the middle post or even a step outside if they're not physical presence. And I start from the first week to work on the pivot. First week. I teach catch and face right away with the front pivot. And after that front pivot, it's going to be either a cross step to up to powerful solutions or he's going to move the defense so bad, come back and kick it out. And I always teach parallel the pivoting, kickouts, and the finishes. And I want to work on the passing skills of the big right away from the first week. They got to understand that when the ball comes inside, they'll become our creators, not only our executors. Coach, and now we're kind of getting into the high-level conversation of like the decision-making and the reads once they catch it in the post to pass. Mm-hmm. And I know before this interview, we've talked about Boris Diaw and his ability to pass out of the post and players like him. You just mentioned about how you like them to catch a little bit more off the low block in, as far as being a playmaker from that spot. So how do you then start to teach the, the reads and the progressions of the post-passer as they're sort of backing in towards the low block and guys are cutting on the backside? Well, of course, you can have three ways to post up, right? A straight post up, closest to the rim as possible. Usually, we talk about powerful players here, Shaquille O'Neal, stuff like that. Or transition rim run. This is the situation where the bigs just get the ball close to the rim and finish. But we don't talk about that situation. We talk about guys getting the ball usually after some screens or, or cuts or after the pick and roll game. So. Progression is this. 
It's important that you have a concept of team spacing, that you don't give them more than two different spacings, in my experience, in one season. So maybe coaches from college will disagree because they have four years to work them out. But we have one season, if you're lucky, two or three. <laughs> so you got to get the best out of them for, so the result could be successful, right? So we go from catching and attacking with a pivot or with a, if he's not pivoting, just an upper body, upper body fake, which is also very important because players do it wrong when they make a, like a drop step to the baseline and then they start going towards the middle. So just an upper body fake, your job is first to get your defender of balance. And then you can only have two spacings that the bigs feel comfortable of attacking into because they want to know if my the passer is cutting or he's receiving a screen or he's making the screen. There's no three ways, right? So I think it's important to establish the spacing every time when the ball goes inside, regardless if it's through pick and roll or in transition or through some screens, we usually do not more than two spaces, two, two options. And we only introduce the first, second one, maybe around Christmas. So I want to get it a second nature to Christmas that we have a crease spacing. I prefer the passer cuts, simple off-ball screen for the wing or, a, or another shooter coming off, and then one in, four out, or the foreman who sets the away screen or a five-man who sets the away screen goes to a opposite dunker spot. Okay. And I think this is the spacing where the bigs should feel most comfortable with because you have a cutter, so you can like pass fake to him as well to get the defense react. And then you start in a clear idea. So big man becomes a point guard. Like your point guard, he plays the ball screen. He wants to know where the old guys are, right? So I think it's the same should apply for your inside game. The bigs become creators or your wing. We not talk about inside game only, about centers, of course. Your point guard can be maybe your most efficient post players. You're going to build the inside game around him. But that's not the point. The point is that they must have a clear idea what every guy does and where they will be. So they can be successful in taking it to the hoop or kicking it out. At the higher level, as they're starting to back in and you have your spacing or your cutting, what type of passes now, say at the professional level, are you wanting that post to make on the cut or the skip? Are you trying to teach more of a one-handed skip pass or how do you want them to deliver the pass to a cutter or a weak side shooter? If he didn't start the dribble, let's say that we play against high elite center who is a dominant player inside. So when he catches the ball already, defense will shrink and they will help. Everybody's going to start digging. Maybe they will start to communicate the traps. So elite bigs, of course, when he catches it, he has a solution after this front pivot that I talked to you about or a back pivot. He's all going to have the ball ready to make an overhead skip. So if the defense is there, the, the elite bigs like Jokic, for example, he's already have that in his arsenal because he's holding the ball properly after he's making a pivot. He's been in a shooting position and it's easy to make a right away mm -hmm. overhead pass. If he starts to dribble, I think it's very important to understand the stability of the dribble and how important it is to have a strong dribble that he doesn't break his back, that he's low, that he's protecting the ball with the other hand. Some bigs are not comfortable passing out of the dribble. And I think this is something that we start to work also from the beginning is just to pound him and push him while he's dribbling. So his vision is on the court instead of his feet. And this separates the great decision maker from the average decision maker. Is he able to dribble? So being able to dribble on the post is very difficult. You have your guy pushing you. You have probably dig from the top. You have maybe yo-yo from the middle. So the ability to control the ball, your opponent and the cutters and the shooters this is high-level skill. So if you talk about specifically to cutters, I think cutters wants to guard, cutters wants to receive the short bounce passes of the dribble. This is absolutely the one. The shooter on the ball side who lifted, or if he stays, he wants to receive a single hand bounce pass for sure to get the shot right. And if he progresses to the middle with two dribbles, we talk about, let's say he started from the left block, so he's dribbling with his right hand, then it could be a Yeah. Big shot to an overhead again to a weak side shooter. Or a baseball, single-hand baseball from the shoulder, like a push pass. You see Shangelia, Shangelia's favorite pass in CSKA. He's using this pass before he starts the dribble, but never after the dribble. And it's important to understand the dishes. You know, it's only not only about bounce pass to the cutters or a kick out to the shooter. We can also talk about dish to the five. If Foreman is playing from the middle post, 
and he decides to spin after one dribble. Now, is he able to control his body, not to travel when the other bigs help come? Can he dish it with a single hand, right pass to his big under the ring? Coach, hearing you talk about the spin move and keeping your balance, you know, I'm also then thinking about when defenses maybe try to pull the chair or when they send a double on the dribble as he starts to make his move. So what are you teaching the big? What are you telling them to, to keep their balance or like the tricks of being able to take contact, make moves like we've talked about, but more like the technique behind it? Technique, let's separate spin and avoiding the traps first. We talk about anticipating traps. We teach, I call it an escape dribble. So you dribble, let's say you start a dribble. You're on your right hand, with left hand you're protecting the ball, with right hand you're controlling, you have the good balance, your feet are well spread apart, more spread than your shoulders, of course, in better stance, and you start, let's say, your crab step. As soon as you see the defense coming, player must be teached to make a defensive dribble. Okay. So we're talking about a back dribble into an overhead skip. It's like a guard escaping the trap in the middle. You know what I mean? So we call it defensive dribble, bam, bam. And then he established the good balance in the verticality, principle of verticality with a mm-hmm. overhead or fake overhead into a split trap pass to cutters. So I think teaching that stability of an escape dribble and connecting the escape dribble, a strong dribble before stop is the crucial. So the last dribble before stop, I call it the stabilization dribble. So it's the also, now we can talk about spin. It's also when you spin. Very important is you're the last dribble directly before the spin is the strongest one. So the ball comes back in your wrist with a good stability so you can create advantage. If your dribble is weak before the spin, you're going to break your back, you're going to lose the footwork, and you're going to lose that one-tenth of the second of an advantage. Coach, so far we've talked a lot about adding a skill or adding a technique I'm curious about identifying like bad skills, bad habits, and like the de-automization process. So taking those away to add then the good habit. What goes into that? It's an excellent question. I think it's it's crucial. Uh, It's crucial for the selection of your individual skill development program throughout the season. And not only an individual, but a group. Maybe you will see that you have uh, similar issues with two players. So you can also now, they will join forces into that when you're going to extract this element, let's say they have issues to stop their body when they're driving into the right side. I had like a left-handed rookie this year, for example, and he's driving to the right, he just can't stop. He always goes for one-two layups. It's either sometimes travel or offensive rebound. So I'm going to try to see why he do it. Is it because he doesn't have that strong last dribble before he stops? Is his footwork, he's not able to stop with one-two or he's not able to make a jump start after a full sprint. So I think it's important to see how much it will impact your offensive system. And if you see that this thing that he really like, certain thing that is going to block him to perform in the system, you should stress it and start working on it right away. But like just giving out the diagnosis is not good enough. So it's not going to be good enough. So you, if we call him out and say, look, check this film, you see this is a problem. Let's try to get better at it. No, we need to really put the effort to put the reps in because just talking about it, it's not going to be enough. You really need to put a reps in. And I think passing skill is something that if we stress it from day one, how important it is that through every exercise, the passes must be sharp and strong. This is also developing some mental habits and their ability to concentrate that really they cannot take passes lightly, not just the ball screen situation. I mean, we didn't even talk about pick and roll because this is such a huge, huge yeah. volume of communication that we have to stress. But Let's talk about the wingman being in the middle, middle of the court and just finding a good pass to a pin down that is going on his right side. And he's dribbling with his left hand. So my wingman is on his left hand. He's on the top of the key. The pin down is going on on the right side of the court. Is he able to get rid of the pressure and make a perfect timing of the pass to the shooter? Because in a pin down, like in staggers, if the pass is one split second late or early, it's over. The play is dead. So I think it's important to see if they're able to do these things so you don't want right. to put them in uncomfortable situations. If, if he's not able to do this type of pass and read, you're going to have issues in your playbook. You know what I mean? So it's important to see what it is and how much it will affect your game. But I do think our responsibility as the coaches, I have a rule, touch to leave to alone. Like find two things 
and then leave two out. Just forget about these two. Tell him about it here and there, but don't really worry about it because ultimately you want him to feel confident. You want him to feel good about what he can do for us. So you don't want to like lay down on the desk everything he doesn't do well. I mean, there is no perfect player. So, but as far as our plan as a staff, we want to have, we're going to go for two and leave two out. So we're going to start operating on two elements and we're going to enter this difficult process of the automatization if we feel like it will help us. Also, I have to be honest and say that sometimes I do maybe too much thinking if he can help him for his career in the future. And yeah. uh, this is just me being the type of a teacher coach who really wants him to improve. Even if we don't meet each other next year, we're not going to be in the same team. I want him to take something away from my season. And uh, I'm a strong believer that we should be putting more and more load to the players, not necessary the men's and pros, but for the youngsters, you know, the society is a little bit caught up in, oh, let's keep them in the comfort zones all the time. Let's keep them happy. And I think it's not fair to them because I think children, believe me, children can take more load than we think. And I think we don't do them in a favor, leaving them happy and comfort zones all the time instead of loading them. You know, you can see the season is long. You can always load in the beginning because it's easier to take the load off than to load on. If you start in a picnic mode early, you're not going to get them. <laughs> you're not going to get them uh, do the dirty work later. Right. So it's better yeah. to start yeah. in the mine, you know, see if we can get the dig for the gold and then, you know, get the unload later. Yeah. Coach, love that. Uh, especially that take two, leave two. Really good stuff there. We want to transfer now into a, a fun segment of the show called Overrated or Underrated. <laughs> Quickly, we'll give you a basketball-related topic. Okay. Ask you, you know, to say if you think it's overrated or underrated, and then uh, we can have a little discussion around it. So we'll start with an easy one for you. Uh-huh. And I know that you wrote a book. You're the author of a methodology basketball book. And so overrated or underrated, the process of writing a book. I just love the process because for me, it was uh, mind-challenging. I was coaching a men's team in the time and a national team, and I had this, uh, some extra time. And it would be ridiculous to compare me to the real authors. Come on, like <laughs> <laughs> the authors who make uh, our cultural impact to our society. I mean, I just wrote a book about methodology. Come on, it's nothing. <laughs> okay. Overrated. Let's put it in our overrated <laughs> okay, category. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Okay, we put it this way. Would you write another book, another basketball book? No, I think the video material would be more appreciated with the details. Uh-huh. I think video material make more sense. Kids do start, players do start, teaching process start with the visual impulse. So I think video material mm-hmm. for that yeah. could be a good addition to the book so it can help uh, the players and coaches. Absolutely. All right, <laughs> we'll get back to basketball here. <laughs> okay. Overrated or underrated? going under on pick and rolls and not so much, let's say non-shooters, but more general being more liberal with going under on pick and rolls. It's hard to put it in a category. It's either, or it's hard to put it in either or like, like for example, last season we did a, there was my primary defense in the early drag jam and under No, jam and under and let's go. If you want to shoot hundred, shoot hundred. Yeah. Other will uh, suffer go, and then we will see. So this was one of the tactics and turned out well. Also, if they do a rescreen, we do a high contain or ice, but a little bit more aggressive to the ball. And I think it worked perfectly fine. But uh, under must be done. If you talk about early drag, for me, only way, the right way to do it is jamming under against ball dominant guards, quick guards. If you just contain an under, uh, then it's tricky. You might uh, put, if he's very quick, you can put your big in a trouble. So I don't know how should I uh, categorize it. <laughs> I think it's always something that you can use. I think some of the teams use it a lot. So I, I would say it's uh, underrated. Okay. Would you go, I mean, you mentioned drag screens, but now late clock pick and rolls. Would you also go under in certain situations or would you be willing to? Late clock pick and rolls. Uh, I, I wouldn't say so because uh, two things. It builds a bad habit early in the season. If you're in foul trouble, if, if you already have 14 fouls, you can get in a lot of trouble if you change the angle and attacks the big. A lot of space is open. Again, under, there's differences. Jamming under or containing under. I don't know what you mean. You know, it's different. Yeah. If you contain an under and you just go under 
the screener and your center is in a contained position that's different than jamming an under. Because if you jam an under, then you don't allow a roll. You know, the roll is out of yeah. the question. So you take one option away. So for me, it's two different things. And um, I would rather go to switching, play clock, and then guard mm-hmm. in this screen, go under. It's very important to give, not give too many freedoms for the guard. If you talk about switching, he must know, it's very important for him to know if he's going under the big and start a fight or he's going to over big. Because if he's going over the big, entering the switching situation, he's risking a lot pass if there's no pressure yeah. on a ball. And then most likely you will enter a triple switch situation. So late in the clock, I would say switching, but like somebody said lately, a very good uh, sentence, if you're not going to do aggressive switching, don't do it at all. But for some reason, uh, it for sure applies on a high, high level. On, on, on a medium level, you can still switch with not high aggression on the ball and still yeah. get away with it. You know, Because perfect switching, of course, is the rule for the big is your job is, my friend, to stop the first two dribbles towards the paint. So this is absolute. If you can maybe succeed to do like a diagonal show, that diagonal hedge, and then retrieve, that's the perfect switch, right? So not a vertical yeah. hedge, like a normal hedge, that you respect the rule of verticality. But if you go a diagonal hedge, while your guard is going under and keeps the fight, that's a perfect switch. That means you take away that second for a guard, he needs to make a defensive dribble or a side dribble to get away from the paint and then find solutions. So in this case, I would go for a, for a switch rather than going under late in the clock. So under, overrated. Late in the clock. Okay. Good. I like that. Coach, next overrated, underrated for you. And I guess think of this in terms of uh, your learnings as a coach. So, overrated or underrated, a losing season? Oh, uh, <laughs> highly appreciated. If, if that, that goes in the category of underrated, right? Sure. Yeah. Be underrated. Yeah. 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 They'll be underrated. Yeah. Highly appreciated because, um, Bad season can teach you so much and uh, winning season can uh, stop you from learning so much. You will get caught up in uh, what you did good and uh, some false self-satisfaction, which is also very difficult sometimes to overcome also for the learning process. I would say um, underrated. Coach, after a losing season and you talked about how it can teach you a lot, what does that next off season look like for you? What do you do then? to turn that losing season into a, a positive result? I would say to look back into managing people around me, which one of them failed, I'm talking about players, of course, to a certain degree and why, and how much was my impact into that. This is number one. Second of all, I would go and see what I could have done better in certain games because I always, for every game, I have my tactical preparation. And after the game, I have my analysis of the tactical preparation. So I kind of bring it all together and see what could have done. Depends if I was, for example, in Geneva, I had a four-year contract and we had a championship season. And then the next season, we just won a cup and we, I think we lost in semis or finals. So it was a, not a winning season. And I remember that postseason, since I was still under contract and I had a lot of players under contract, we just heal our wounds with work. You know, and it's different. I mean, if you have team uh, ready for the next step, you just <laughs> nothing, uh, nothing beats work. You know. Yeah. But if it's end of your contract and you don't want to stay, and you or you parted ways with the club after that season, I guess just a retrospective. And where did you mess up in a selection? And where did you mess up as a coach, as a leader? You know, I'm really hard on myself, so I always start with myself. You just mentioned your post game analysis of your tactical preparation. Could you briefly talk about what that looks like post-game, what you do to go through your process? Yeah, I know in some point, like 10 years ago, I realized that I spent so much time watching pre-game, watching the opponent and so less time post-game. And I think it's equally important because it doesn't matter if you lose or win, you still got to take something away from that game, especially when it comes to individual progress of players in certain aspects of the game, defensively or offensively. Or if you want to think about only your systems and schemes. So post-game process is about me seeing if the coverages worked. If they didn't work, why? And I think it's important to question why. Because I think it's a bad habit of some coaches. When they lose a game, they change the playbook right away. They look at the forest and they don't see the tree. And I think the tree is sometimes a solution. 
you know, mm-hmm. not to quit on your principles and not to quit on your basic coverages, what you have decided for this team early just because you lost the game. You know, I think it's important to understand that reason why, for example, your hedging didn't work is not because, you know, third rotation wasn't there and they made a tough shot and now I should stop hedging. No, maybe the hedge was bad because the guard didn't do his job. First, hip check the guard, force him only to one side and then fight like a maniac over the screen. So, you know what I mean? So just doing that analysis and seeing why and then let it go and keep working on it. I think it's it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yep. It's huge for the next week of practice. It's huge to me being calm that we did everything we could and that's that's why. I mean, look, you know, we're not li- living in a fair world. I mean, overall, you you know what I mean? Some games, you just things don't go in as well as you expect. Our opponent plays the hell of a basketball. You know what I mean? Uh, so you also have to see that. See that aspect of did a guy in that open, opponent team had a brilliant game, game of his career or a birthday game, as we say. You know? <laughs> so just to cover all the angles and see if your team did the best they could. All right, coach, overrated, underrated. Changing your defenses after a timeout. So you're coming out on defense, whether it's let's press them or let's play zone. Aha, it's underrated. Yeah, especially opponents' timeouts. Okay. I mean, many coaches do it, but I think it's underrated. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, not only to zone, but switch the coverages. Mm -hmm. Switch the coverage. Hey, next two we switch or next two we late switch. Yeah. You know, I think these coverages are today, at least in Europe, kind of more, you need to train them to do that. And and this this is something you have to start on practice. And I think it's underrated. If you have a team that is able to deliver that, if they have the tactical capacity, why not? Yes. And that was going to be my follow-up. Does it have to be part of your identity? No, no. Or is it maybe game to game? Like no, I think it's just a feeling. No, it's a game to game. You have to understand the flow of your team. Coaches sometimes like to look good. We think we're really smart if we do that, you know. But we are not yeah. paying attention if the players are in, in a good rhythm. If they're in a good rhythm doing what they're doing, let's feel their rhythm. You know, maybe they're really confident. They're not confident switching into zone. We're going to lose the pressure or we're going to, you know, give up a, a cut or a rebound that we didn't want to give. So, I'm definitely not as a pattern, as a part of the coaching identity. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. And I guess now, just out of your preference, if you're going to come out and press, are you in favor of pressing to maybe get a steal, speed the game up, or pressing to slow them up and run clock off? I think you should start off with the first one in a preseason, of course, to be aggressive, yeah. to provoke mistakes, to push them into errors and then like with a load and then it's easy to pull back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But if you start easy, it's hard to <laughs> make them uh, go bite by their next full court. So I think it's always good methodologically to start harder and then you can always release the pressure after timeout. You say, okay, we're going to play, I don't know, 44 or black or white, however you call your press, but mm-hmm. you know, black light, you know, black light. That means we're going to be just biting time and faking traps, you know, so the guards are always going to be in a yo-yo situation. So the guard is hesitant. So, but in methodology, you should have a full court. Let's bite their necks and then easy to pull back. Absolutely. Okay. Well, coach, you're off the overrated, underrated hot seat. We're done with that. So thanks for playing. We want to finish up here with, uh, with one question for you. And before we do, thanks for all your time today and your thoughts. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for questions. And it was a pleasure to talk to you guys. I really enjoy your work. And uh, you. I think it's more and more appreciated within our small basketball community of the world. And uh, I'm really happy for you guys. Thank you very much. Coach, last question for you. You know, you're someone that's been around the game as a player and a coach for a long time and seen different countries and different styles of play. Currently, what are some trends of the game that most excite you about where the future of basketball is heading? I think what would excite me is to see a team after this small ball era, and, you know, happy trigger era for threes and quick solutions and quick early ball screens, early drags, you know, drive and kick. I would like to see something new, you know what I mean? But uh, it's just me. I would like, I would just like to see something new, something exciting. Somebody who, some coach somewhere who has been given opportunity to create something new for more than one year, you know what I mean? Because ultimately coaching is a creative process. Coach is like, is an artist in a way. You cannot put an art in 10 months, you know, but I would like to see something new. And I always enjoy, you know, I'm a fan of players, fan of basketball. And like, excites me when I see a guy like Kevin Durant brought something new into basketball. 
to me, uh, Steph Curry brought something new into basketball. But I would like to see where it goes in a player's aspect. You know what I mean? New players, new, new, new creations inspires me, yeah. you know? I had a conversation um, two years ago with an inventor of Sham God. You know the move Sham God? Yeah. You push it towards with the one and then you bring it back. You know, people think that Bodiroga invented this move, but it was actually a current scout of Brooklyn Nets. There's international scout. His name is Danko Tsvetichan. He was a famous, famous shooter in Europe. And he's a very respected scout. And he invented the Sham God back in the 80s. Okay. I mean, when I tell this to my guys in New York, they say, oh, no, no, Sham God was invented on the New York playgrounds. Yeah, it could be. But it could be that the two guys invent the same move in two different parts of the world, right? Right. Like a same chef, a cooking chef can invite a dish in Indonesia and in New York, right? So I would finish with this thought that the new things inspire me. Copying things doesn't inspire me. I think we have to step back sometimes a little bit when it comes to coaching these kids and let their own creative juices flow in off-season. Hey, be inventive. Create your own move. Yes, you're going to watch Kyrie, you're going to watch this guy, that guy, Drazen Petrovic. But create your own move, create your own signature move. You know what I mean? Inspire them being creative is more important than just inspire them to do what they've told. And I think to answer your question, what would really excite me is to see something new. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like Slapping Backboard. <laughs> slapping Glass. <laughs> slapping Glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> Slapping Glass.